April is upon us. Always an exciting time in the capital region. The weather's still cool, the state budget is late, Ramadan is underway, and Easter and Passover are just days away. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. Just the latest example is we're talking of right now of far too many stories this week that involve gun violence. And we'll talk to three award-winning filmmakers whose work is being featured at the Albany Film Festival this weekend. He was desperate to point out how he was innocent and how what had happened to him was, was essentially a frame-up. It's a really critical time for us to be ensuring that the history of Black people in this country, Indigenous people in this country, is told in a way that's really authentic and true to the experiences of the people that were told those stories, lived through those times. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. Enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Becker, we again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Uh, We're going to talk about a pretty busy news week here. The top stories. We'll start with what happened. We are talking on Thursday, what happened this morning. School districts across the capital region, several of them were placed on lockdown after what turned out to be bogus reports of active shooters came in and it was determined it was part of a a nationwide hoax and obviously this week many of us in the united states are still reeling from the school shooting in nashville so give us the latest what's going on with all of this yeah um we're talking about several uh significant districts all school districts are significant of course in the capital region but albany which is, of course, very populous. East Greenbush, um, Skodak, and uh, Troy all investigating these, you know, bogus reports of uh, an active shooter situation. It is part of the process known as swatting, essentially, where bogus reports will uh, cause police and other public safety officials to swarm to you know, either a private residence or a public facility like a like a school. And it's disruptive. Goodness knows it's scary. And it's yet another. It's just the latest example as we're talking of right now of far too many stories this week that involve gun violence or the the specter of gun violence, I should say. Absolutely. And as a parent of a child in one of those districts, I can tell you this morning was tense. But moving on, unfortunately, we're going to be talking about another incidence involving guns and potential gun violence. Uh, This week, there was a standoff briefly at Albany Medical Center, which was also placed under lockdown. Can you tell us what that story was? This is a Monday uh, when a man named uh, Dino Savoca, who's in his early 60s, uh, 
allegedly uh, wielded a BB pistol and um, apparently law enforcement also found a shotgun, um, certainly a far more serious firearm at Albany Med. Uh, apparently this involved a dispute over the care of his very elderly mother who passed away just a day after this incident. For several hours, Albany Med was, you know, once again, it's a word we're using a lot, placed on lockdown. And while no uh, staffer was ever, you know, apparently injured in any way, it was obviously a very scary situation. He was arraigned the next day on charges of second degree kidnapping and second degree criminal possession of a weapon. Those are both felonies as well as menacing, which is a, a misdemeanor. And he pleaded uh, not guilty. So, you know, very scary. And of course, you had uh, the nurses union um, uh, calling on Albany Med and other facilities to make sure that staff were safe by taking proper precautions. So I'm sure that is going to be debated going forward. Absolutely. We will be following that. All right. On to a story that took place actually toward the end of last week, but it has kind of bled into this week in terms of the headlines. But there was a fire, a massive fire at the Kenwood site, which was formerly the Joan Stewart School. Uh, what's happening with that story? Yeah, former Doan Stewart School, former Kenwood Convent um, as well. This beautiful, grand, sort of uh, U-shaped brick building with a chapel kind of running down the center in the south end, kind of high on a promontory. And uh, for reasons that are not yet known, this abandoned building burned in really spectacular, albeit terrible fashion, on Thursday evening a, a week ago. And the only good news here is that, number one, nobody was injured. And number two, that the breaking news coverage by many members of the Times Union was really top notch. And anybody who has seen photos from Jillian Hamilton and Jim Franco from the scene are really pretty remarkable. This property, if you can believe it, had been sold at auction, public auction, only two days before the fire for $100,000. You know, that, of course, raised, raised many questions about that kind of coincidental timing. But of course, there is nothing untoward that is suspected at this time. Uh, this is a property that has, has stood vacant for many, many years kind of missed opportunities to develop it, which had been proposed. The city rejected demand for kind of uh, tax goodies from one set of developers several years ago. And uh, the city, you know, did its best to kind of board the facility up to keep it secure and also to make sure that brush and overgrowth was kept away from it. But a real loss to to the city's um, history and to its built environment, and something that is that has already prompted questions about um, just how well Albany, like many other sort of fiscally hard pressed, slightly gritty, you know, historic upstate cities, are are dealing with properties like this. Absolutely. Head over to timesunion.com to see some of those striking photos and also video um, of of the tragic burning of this facility. It's really striking. Um, but on that note, I do want to move on to some more positive news. Some 
something that you actually mentioned this week. You tweeted about this because you you had said that you thought, you know, we needed something a little bit lighter this week amid all the heavy news. Uh, let's talk about tomato pie and the local history of tomato pie. Yeah, Jennifer uh, Vanderworken, who is uh, one of our outstanding freelancers, wrote this wonderful piece looking at the more than a century long history of the tomato pie at Parekas. And uh, Maria Papa uh, sat down with us to to discuss, you know, the appeal of this particularly upstate dish, the tomato pie. It, it's it's not a pie, it's not a pizza, but it's kind of somewhere in between. And uh, you know, <laughs> that's a fair description. Can you describe it more specifically? What exactly is it? It's essentially a whole lot of tomato and a whole lot of tomato sauce in a delicious uh, kind of breaded crust. You know, <laughs> how else to describe something like that? It's very singular. I mean, don't don't, don't you agree? It's something between a, a pizza and an actual pie. Yeah, you can't quite call it a pizza. You're right. People people would be up in arms, especially those who are on the either side of the fierce debate between New York style and Chicago style pizza. I, I think this doesn't play into that at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's deep dish without a doubt, or it, it is usually deep dish, at least the versions that that I've tried. But it's a great piece of history and it's uh, it's mouthwatering. And goodness knows that this story offered a really nice break from too many tales of guns and destruction. Absolutely. All right, Casey, thank you so much. We'll check back in with you next week. Jess, thanks a lot. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. We're going to switch gears now and talk about one of my personal favorite topics, movies. This weekend is the third annual New York State Writers Institute Albany Film Festival, and the lineup is bringing both mainstream and indie filmmakers to town, as well as some big names like Avatar actor Stephen Lang and Till screenwriter Keith Beauchamp. Head over to albanyfilmfestival.org for a schedule of screenings and events. Now, I always love to learn about local filmmakers and films that are made about local subjects. Now, there are two films in particular that are screening April 1st that have very specific ties to the Capital Region. I had the chance to interview the filmmakers of both, and we're going to play some of those conversations for you here. The first film is called Witness. It's directed by Hudson Valley-based filmmaker and medical doctor Masood Haq. The film's subject matter is one that many Capital Region residents may be quite familiar with. In 2006, the leader of an Albany mosque and a pizza shop owner were convicted of money laundering in conspiracy to commit terrorism. Yasin Aref and Mohammed Hossein had been caught in an FBI sting operation involving another familiar name. If you've been paying attention to local news recently, you'll know this one, Shahed Hussein. Shahed Hussein is a known FBI informant and the owner of the limo company that illegally put a vehicle on the road that killed 20 people in Schoharie County in 2018. Back in the early 2000s, though, Shahed Hussein lured Mohammed Hossein and Yasina Raf into the sting, setting them up in a pretend arms deal to buy weapons for a fake plot to kill a diplomat. 
The latter two each did 15 years in prison. But the case was highly controversial, with many believing the two were completely innocent and framed by the government, driven by anti-Islamic hysteria in the wake of 9-11. Aref and Hossein are now out of prison. Hossein lives in Albany. Aref was deported to Iraq. And Masood Haq's film Witness catches up with both of them in their lives now and explores how they're reconciling what happened to them. Here's a portion of my conversation with Hawk about the film. Last night, FBI agents in Albany, New York, arrested two men on the basis of warrants issued on a criminal complaint filed in federal court in Albany. Those men have been identified as 34-year-old Yassin Muhyiddin Aref and 49-year-old Mohammed Musharraf Hossein. Let's just start out with with the subject matter of your film. Um, up here in the capital region, the story of Hossein and Aref back in 2006 was huge news, you know, a really, really big story. And the story, in a way, obviously continues for us as well, you know, with the Schoharie limo crash and the call for, you know, more transparency in the FBI's uh, handling of Shahed Hussein. Um, as a, as an informant. So so this story has just kind of been on the top of our minds for a while. But I'm curious, how did this story come onto your radar and why did you decide to make a film about it? So um, I first became aware of the story when I was doing my thesis film uh, at City College uh, titled A Stranger in Paradise. One of the lawyers, Kent Sprodberry, who was representing uh, Yassin Aref, uh, had also represented the subject that I was covering uh, for Stranger in Paradise. So I was interviewing him, and at the interview, he said, you know, what happened to this guy? And uh, yeah, um, Ansar Mahmoud's story is, is fairly well known in Hassan Valley, too, where he was caught uh, taking pictures at a reservoir and uh, subsequently deported uh, for some uh, immigration violations. Um, so he said to me, listen, this is nothing. You should you should go downtown and and in the courthouse to see what's happening there, because um, it is just a travesty. These two guys are just framed uh, framed for a crime that they did not commit, and uh, so that was the first time that this this story entered my consciousness. And uh, being who I am, I I, I was uh, born in Pakistan. I came here at a very early age, and the time that it was early two thousands, the entire. Um, subject matter had a very personal connection to me, um, to be sort of singled out, to be made other. Um, I, so it, it immediately appealed to me that, that I, and, and the, the, the case seemed very, very complex. Um, so I, it, it perked my interest and I started looking into it. And that's how I just sort of uh, came across it. How long did you work on this film? So this film uh, was done in, in various um, pieces. Initially, I, I went up, went um, to Albany in 2011 and 12. I did research and I did some interviews. Um, after doing the initial interviews, and at that point, both of these men were in jail, I basically spoke with their families and, and, and their supporters and the lawyers who represented them. Mm-hmm. Um, and after speaking with them, it was quite clear to me that I could not do a film without speaking to these two men, mm-hmm. that they had to tell their stories. So it I kind of went into a hiatus until 2018 when uh, Yassin RF was first released. And then um, in 2020 when um, Musharraf was uh, released. So I went to Iraq in 2020 and um, 
first uh, filmed Yasin and then subsequently did um, interviews with uh, or told the story of uh, Musharraf. When the FBI called me, I'm thinking what I have to worry, what I did wrong. I didn't do nothing wrong. I'm not a criminal. I'm a businessman. I do everything everybody can see. Was it hard to to get them to talk to you? Did they want to talk about it? Yes, I think they desperately wanted to talk about it. And there, there were two very um, sort of distinct, uh, there were differences uh, in the way they wanted to talk about it. Um, Yasin Aref was full of this sort of, I think, a certain amount of resentment and anger at what had happened to him because he was in his early 30s and he had missed out on, on um, sort of the upbringing of his children and, and a really a significant chunk of his life. So he was desperate to point out how he was innocent and how what had happened to him was, was essentially a frame-up. Indirect or direct message from the people that because my position as the imam, that I will be under their watch. But in my mind, so what? What I'm doing to be careful about? So let them watch. When I first met Musharraf, he had just left jail. And Musharraf is older. He had um, significant health-related issues. And I, you know, uh, being a physician, I, when I first met him, I really thought that he was having PTSD. He was so traumatized. He, he, he at times was not coherent. He, he wanted to say so many things and ideas would just kind of spill out of him, you know. Um, and, and so it, it, my first interview, my first meeting with him was very, very emotional. And then I did subsequent interviews and, and I noticed that within six to eight months, you know, his, he had a lot of family support and and he had started to calm down and, and, and he became more reflective. Uh, but nevertheless, both of these men really wanted to tell their own stories. Tell me about your journey as you as you talk to them and as you, you know, tried to lay out their story. So, you know, talking to them about their stories, I, I, I especially with, with Musharraf, I, you know, he, he had so much going on in terms of the things he wanted to say. I really had to um, maneuver him to, and, and center him over and over again as to what the what the um, crux of the matter was. So it was with him, it was it was just sort of listening for long periods of time as to what he was saying and then trying to pick up threads of what he had said and try to bring it into a sort of a more cohesive story. Um, and as I said, and in the subsequent interviews, he got better. But um, Yasin had written a book about his experience, so he was prepared. And I did um, five days of interviews with Yasin up to like six hours uh, a day. Wow. And he had a lot to say. And I could have done another six days with him and he would have had a lot to say because he had thought about it. He had written a book about it. He, he is a writer. He's a poet. So he had, he had very strong feelings about what had happened to him. And, and he just couldn't wait to just upchuck everything. <laughs> Now let's talk more about what you want people to take away from this film, because obviously, in in a way, it's kind of a detailing of of a case of two cases. But also, there's you know the element of there's racism and there's you know anti-Islamic sentiment. So, what are you hoping that audiences will take away from this film? So, one of the most important thing um, that I think people need to understand is that when government is given the powers that were given through the Patriot Act, that those powers are um, abused at a reg- on a regular basis. And, and it is really 
the idea that you would take someone who's so vulnerable, who's an immigrant, who can't speak English properly, who looks very different in, in, in terms of the, how they dress and their facial hair and, and, and their manes. And, and when you give agents and government agencies power to go after these vulnerable types of people, you are you should be ready for abuse of power. You should be ready that that because in 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 American history, there's always been sort of this recurrent theme of 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 oppression of certain types, especially the new immigrants until they become part of the society. There's always suspicion of them, whether it is the Chinese uh, or whether it is the Japanese during the World War two. um it, it because they were the new newer immigrants, and it was very easy to to um, hold them uh, accountable for things that they weren't really responsible for. Um, and so I think for me, it's the, mo the, the, the most important theme of the film is that the government power unleashed upon sort of these vulnerable um, new immigrants um, and, and how when, when we give these agencies this power, there should be oversight. And, and um, one of the things that I learned is that we often accuse other countries of propaganda I firmly believe that FBI engaged in propaganda in this particular case. So, and that propaganda happened because they were given those powers through the Patriot Act. Where are these men now in their lives? Mohammed Hossein lives in Albany still, or in, lives in the capital region, and Yassin Araf is in Iraq. What are what are they doing now? Uh, Mohammed Hussein, Musharraf Hussein, uh, is in, in, indeed in Albany. He has um, a lot of health problems. He's awaiting a kidney transplant. Um, he has uh, some rental properties that he manages. He has grown children who are very supportive of him. Um, so he, in some ways, is just sort of been brought back into the bosom of his family. Um, uh, very much the same thing with Yassin. He's back in, in Kurdistan, in Suleimania, in a small town near Suleimania. He initially was a um, chauffeur for a while. And then um, he sort of became a local celebrity because he started to write poems and, and stories about his, his experience. So he has a large following on Facebook. And he, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, his son, who uh, went on to law school, he graduated from Harvard Law, and his daughter became a, a teacher as well. So he has, you know, he has children who are, who are thriving, and, and he is also artistically thriving. And, and the only sort of difference is that because he can't come back to this country, he's sort of always separated from his children. That's, that's that part of it. But I think in many ways, he's finding fulfillment in being back in Iraq and being among his own people and speaking his own language. You can catch Witness at the Albany Film Festival Saturday, April 1st at 10.30 a.m., or watch it on Prime TV or Video On Demand. After the break, we'll talk to the directors of Out of the Muck, an award-winning documentary that aired on PBS. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy.
I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Now, the second film that we're discussing on this episode is by local filmmakers Ira McKinley and Bowen Suchak. Their film, Out of the Muck, premiered in February on PBS. It tells the story of Pahokee, a central Florida city known for fertile soil, a.k.a. the muck, and football. The predominantly Black city has produced a stunningly high amount of both produce and NFL players over the decades. But the story in this film goes beyond just that. Ira McKinley's family has deep roots in Pahokee going back seven generations, and the filmmakers explore what keeps this dynamic city thriving, despite challenges posed over time by poverty, systemic racism, industry, and natural disasters. I recently spoke to Ira and Bowen about making the film. Here is a portion of our conversation. When I was a kid, Pahokee was the place to be. Time changed, man. It was like a dark cloud. Everything went to welting away and stuff. But now you can see a little light. So tell me about Pahokee. What is it about this central Florida city that makes it special? I wasn't there. I had to go there for 35 years, but I knew it was a magical spot, like a Garden of Eden. And I had a lot of history that needed to be, you know, remembered. This is the place where the slaves used to run to, and it was part of a system, and they had canals and all these other things. And the canals are still there. That's how they irrigate their land with the sugarcane. So the major crop is sugarcane, but before that, they were growing anything. So when they drained the swamp, when they drained it, all that vegetation became became rich. And you could throw a seed out there and it will grow. Oh, the muck will grow anything. <laughs> That's it. It'll grow anything. That's really Put you in the ground, you might start growing. You got to understand at the same time, it was the Jim Crow. So. And that was a vacation. So Florida didn't want them in West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, Miami. So, but they were serving, serving. But it took a natural disaster for them to, like, lose all that. And aside, Ira is talking here about the hurricane of 1928. That caused Lake Okeechobee, which Pahokee sits on the shores of, to overflow. And it inundated Pahokee and surrounding towns. It killed almost 2,000 people, most of them black migrant workers. Bowen, you'd never been to Pahokee before making this film, right? What else to you makes Pahokee special from your perspective? You know, Ira's family's from down there. So for me, I had to first, you know, really get down there and, and build relationships with people so they knew who I was and, you know, what the project was about. And I think, you know, the thing that I noticed right away is how much pride and how much love and care people have for each other in the community. It's really an incredible 
place that people really have a sense of connection to each other. In a way, it's, it's a type of you know lifestyle and community living that you don't really see in many major cities. And I think the other part of it is that people live off the land. You know, people are living off what they catch in the lake and the, the vegetables they grow and the, and the animals that they hunt. And so it's a very traditional way of life. And for me, it's like I really saw the connection there between the indigenous people and the way the people in Pahokia are living because a lot of them are really spiritual and connected to the land in a way that they see it as something that's part of their spirit, their history, the culture that happens there. And you, and you see them, how they teach their kids these, you know, uh, ideals as well. Let's talk about football. Now, the role that this sport plays in Pahokee is a large part of your film, and it's also a large part of what puts Pahokee in the spotlight nationally. Something like four dozen NFL players have come from this small city alone. So tell me more about the role that football plays here. When I look at football in that community, it's more than just the sport. You know, it's really about how people come together and how they build community together with the football team as a part of the, you know, the pride of the town. So you'll see in the film, people talk about the kind of hopes and dreams and the, and the energy of the town kind of rising and falling with the football team, you know, so it means more to them than just the sport. Out of the muck centers around members of Ira's family. Can you talk more about them and why you chose specifically to focus the story on Bridget and Alvin? You know, really connecting with Ira's family and they have, uh, they have roots there. You know, they've been there since the beginning of the town almost in 19... 19- you know, 28, they moved there, the town started in 1922. And so they've been there for seven generations, you know, and it's really amazing to watch people like Bridget and Alvin, who are the two main characters, and that's Ira's niece and nephew. They're kind of like these centers of gravity in the town. It's like people just want to be around them. They know they can go to them for help and support. And I think, you know, everybody in a community that's small and tight like that, you know, somebody like that who's kind of holding things down. And that's why we really ended up focusing the story around the two of them because they were such prominent people in the community. So that was something that we really wanted to highlight because I think there's so many films about these types of small rural towns, especially documentaries that only focus on the negative, the poverty, the violence, and always people, it's always about the people that want to get out of those towns. And so we asked the question, well, what about the people that stay? That's Ira's family. They've been there. They've stayed there. There's so many members of his family down there. You know, it's hard to keep track sometimes. We attempted to really show that this town has this incredible community that we hope people can watch and say, well, how can I make that happen in my own community? You know, how can I recognize the beauty and the love and, and know the history of the places that I live so that I can be more deeply connected? Are you happy with how people have have received the film? I think that people have really loved the film because I think you don't see depictions like this of rural Black America. We played um, in over 25 film festivals. We won a uh, whole bunch of awards. And I think the other really exciting thing is that we've, you know, we've shown it a few times in universities and college settings and high school settings. And young people really resonate with the film because it has a youthful energy to it. You know, and I think people are really excited about, you know, the storyline around football, but how it intersects with the broader, you know, community story. And then I think the last thing I'll add is that, you know, it came at a time when I think Zora Neale Hurston and her work in her legacy, you know, as a incredible, you know, anthropologist and filmmaker and writer is finally starting to get, you know, a level of recognition that it's deserved for a long time. You know, um, there's currently three other, you know, two other films. So there's three films total that were in festivals last year. 
that, you know, intersected with Zora Neale Hurston's story in some form. Zora Neale Hurston, of course, for those who don't know, is arguably most famous for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's a personal favorite of mine. Um, a large part of that story takes place in Belglade, that is next door to Pahokee, and their communities are very much intertwined, both physically and metaphorically. They're both considered part of Muck City. Now, do you think that the film coming together at this particular time in history, both within the United States and within Florida and globally, do you think the film kind of came together at the right time? That's the other piece, and I think Ira touched on it a little bit. It's a really critical time for us to be ensuring that the history of Black people in this country, Indigenous people in this country, is told in a way that's really authentic and true to the experiences of the people that were told those stories, lived through those times, you know, and I think that that's why it's really critical, in our opinion, for a film like this to come out at this time. And I think for me, and I think I'll probably speak for you too, Ira, I want people to watch this film and then go out and do more research, you know, that it sparks your interest in history and that it makes you realize, you know, that the past is always present. That's a, really the missing link in how this country is going to reconcile you know, it's past and, and, and the injustices, you know, that it has kind of inflicted on indigenous people and black people is to acknowledge and, and reckon with the truth of what the history was. And I think, again, as you see in what's going on with these laws and, and, and a lot of the, the bills in places like Florida and other states, is it's an erasure of that history because they don't want to deal with it. And I think that when you go to a place like Pahopi, it's everywhere you go, you know, and so how do we ensure that a film like Out of the Muck isn't just something that could be seen at a film festival, but is seen in high schools and universities as part of people's curriculum? Because we believe it's a learning tool. I mean, that's ultimately why we make films. I mean, both of us are really about filmmaking, not to be Hollywood and all these other things, but to tell stories that are going to move people to change. You know, the, the production company is social change in mind for a reason. We don't sugarcoat it. Right. When you were talking about, you know, going down and building relationships with the people um, in the city uh, of Pahokee, like, was that, was there challenges to that? I mean, did people yeah. want to tell their story or did they open up immediately? Like, tell us about that process. Uh, I think the challenge in Pahokee is that there's been a lot of films made about that community that really hyper focuses on those things that I mentioned earlier how poor, you know, oh, they're in the middle of nowhere, they're uneducated, there's violence, you know, all they care about is football. So all these kind of negative tropes that you see in documentaries. And I think that there's this idea in documentary that if you show these really oppressed people, people are going to want to do something and make, you know, and help. But I think the, the thing it kind of does, in my opinion, has an opposite effect where it kind of makes people think, well, that's all these folks can do. They, they're poor, they, they're uneducated, and, you know, because that's all you're showing people, you know? And I think that, you know, there is a tendency, and I will say specifically for white filmmakers, to want to go down to this community and show, like, how desperate and dire things are. If you actually spend time there, you'll find that this, com this community is not poor, but they're actually resource-rich. You know, there's so many things there that people are kind of utilizing and living off of in a way that's really impressive and it's and it's it's kind of amazing to look at how resilient people are in a place like that because they have dealt with a lot of challenges you know the hurricane the divestment of all the you know agriculture that happened there the crack cocaine epidemic you know aids epidemic there's been a lot of challenges 
you know, and so we wanted to come in and tell a different type of story. But your initial reaction from a lot of community members is, well, what's going to be different about yourself? But who are you? Why are you here? What kinds of things? Why are you pointing that camera at me? But I think, you know, that, that, that hesitancy is justified, you know, because people are tired of seeing themselves depicted in only one particular way. You're not there to sort of, you know, exploit and extract, you know, you're there to build relationships and the act of making a film can become this relational thing rather than this kind of like observational thing. And so voyeuristic. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The biggest thing is that we built this connection and Ira will even tell you, he wants to move back down there because he really connected deeply with his family in a way that he, I don't think he even expected, you know, and it was really a beautiful thing to watch that and to see that, you know, while you've been kind of like trying to find this community your whole life, but your community was right there under your, under your nose. You just hadn't been back there. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I mean, Ira, did you want to add anything to that? I didn't go back to that land for 35 years after my father was killed. I was born in New York, but he used to bring us there every year until I was like 14. But I remember going down there and it'd be introduced to my cup. It was challenging. Listen, I had a hard time. I ain't gonna lie to you, you know what I'm saying? I came out of prison. I went through this whole period while I was homeless, you know what I'm saying? And I see, I see the things that's going on. But I'm like, how can I, I understand there was people that was before us. So when you do a process like this, it, it reminds you, there will be certain people in your community that held the community together. We see that with Bridget, we see that with, with Alvin, with the kids, and we're just trying to express that, you know. I'm seeing a lot of elders pass, you know what I'm saying? I feel like that we need to, we need to honor them, you know what I'm saying? How do we honor them? We gotta tell the stories. You can catch Out of the Muck at the Albany Film Festival Saturday, April 1st at 1 p.m., or you can stream it on the Independent Lens and PBS apps. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Paul Grondel for their contributions to this episode. <laughs>